back to Scorey Time and under the hood look at film scores. We're currently looking at Bond scores but we will be going on to other scores in the future. But today is all about the cues and tracks from 1962's Doctor No. Before we start, a quick promo to say please do leave us a review and subscribe to make sure you don't miss future episodes. An awful lot of work is going into these episodes, both research and editing, so help us make it worthwhile by passing the pod on to others and recommending us. We're on Facebook, check out Scorey Time, give the page a like, and we'd love to hear what you think of the show. It's been pretty quiet thus far. We're also on Twitter, at Scorey Time Pod, and if you've got any questions or talking points for us to cover, please do give us a shout and we'll try and cover them. So, let's meet our presenters. I'm Jason Frederick, composer for Film, Television and Assorted Media. Hi, I'm Warren Ringham. I'm the founder and director of Cue the Music Show, a touring James Bond tribute band and concert. And I'm Gage Hubei, film music historian. So, gents, last time we dived into sort of a general look at the sort of soundtrack of Dr. No, and today we're going to dial in a bit closer into some of the cues, looking at how they're used, and just basically kind of have a little bit of a closer look at all the tracks. So, where better to start than the opening credits, and that really very unique sounding opening credits with the bleeps and blops. Jason, I know you're a big fan. I am indeed. One of the things that I do appreciate about Dr. No as a score is the way that it represents so many different styles of music, any one or two of which could have been the basis for how they continued. So you get a lot of the James Bond theme in John Barry's version of it, vision, vision of it, but then you also get a lot of what you now call source music, you know, Monty Norman's sort of Jamaica-inspired music, but then you get a traditional score, but then you also get the odd bit of oramics. You get the odd bit of uh, Daphne Orm's electronic music. So there are so many different things from what became the sound of the 60s to a more traditional sound to this sort of a space-age thing going on. Like, it's all going on in Dr. No. And then they got very specific about what they thought was going to work, and they kind of continued down that path for the rest of the 60s. Mm, Yeah, Uh, this little bit of the bleeps and blops, as I call it, sort of slightly dismissively, but taken from a piece called Atoms in Space by a lady called Daphne Oram. So completely separately to anything that Monty Norman and John Barry contributed. And Daphne Oram is a really quite remarkable woman. A pioneer, sort of recognised as a pioneer in producing electronic sounds and a co-founder of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, which of course was eventually responsible for composing something like the Doctor Who theme, which is a fantastic piece of music. I absolutely love that. And it's completely done in this sort of electronic style that Daphne Oram was the pioneer of. But growing up, I didn't really understand the relevance of this particular sort of approach, these, these bleeps and blops, especially, you know, same old story, Doctor No was not the first film I'd seen, so I didn't see it in the context. But I still couldn't understand looking at it for a long time, you know, how it sort of fitted into the rest of the film, let alone the series. And the only thing that I could ever really associate it to before I sort of researched it was that I thought it was... I found it linked to that sort of whole part of the film where James Bond is climbing through the air ducts in Doctor No's base. And there's all those sort of amazing sort of sound effects that you hear as he's climbing through there. And, and lo and behold, in sort of researching this this uh, podcast, 
I discovered that those are sounds made by Daphne Orum as well. So it, that's the sort of link, I guess. And it, it's nice that there is a thread that comes back in the film within the score. But, but you know, fascinating lady and approach to composition. And it's, I think there's a danger that, you know, as, uh, as someone that really likes uh, notes on the page that can be played by musical instruments, uh, and even people listening, you know, uh, everyone listening to a score podcast is probably the type of person that, generally speaking, wants that you know, traditional approach of writing thematic material to films and stuff. So this is quite a, a avant-garde, uh, you know, a way of, of approach to writing music. And, and I think we have to be careful not to dismiss stuff like this as not really music in the way that we want to hear it because you know what she did the way that she sat down and created a whole new sound by mixing together different electronic sounds and looping them and you know dubbing them and everything else really really intelligent creative process i think that amps up the sort of sci-fi element to it because, you know, Dr. No is sort of a creature of sci-fi as much as he's a creature of, you know, spy fiction. Well, that's the thing, you know, the, this is almost, for 1962, there's a, a sort of a sci-fi element to this that we don't really think about because we're looking at it 50 years later. But, you know, a, a room full of computers and stuff like, a, like in Dr. No's lair was sort of very, you know, sort of, I guess, futuristic at that time. And the that, I suppose, approach of these Daphne Oram sounds was like very much a, a thing of here is something very new. Um, you know, this is going to be a very different film. It's going to be a very new approach. And uh, so that could be you know, a, a reason for that, I think. You know, you could have had a score on in, in an alternate universe that had a lot more Daphne Oram and a lot more cues that might have sounded like um, like Audio Bongo. Forgive me for continuing to bring up Audio Bongo, but uh, if you would have had a score that was predominantly that sound, that would have been a relatively consistent vibe. That would have yeah. been a kind of a sci-fi space age vibe. But you get a little tiny bit of that, and then a lot of this more traditional score in the manner that we uh, of which we spoke in the last episode well the non-used cues uh, you know on the soundtrack the monty norman stuff is really there's some really abstract stuff in there which obviously wasn't then as we know used apart from there's a little bit used in the, the approach to the island isn't there we, we'll talk a bit more about that later as well but in a lot of ways that that would have linked a lot better with monty norman's score had they have used it but this is obviously quite a late addition in comparison the fact that the London sessions took place after the Jamaica sessions could lead one to believe that the decision to go with a very strongly traditional score might have come a little later in the process as well. As opposed to taking that sound, that abstract audio bongo-esque sound and saying, let's expand that. Let's just really try to tailor that to the rest of the scenes in the film. Clearly, they went into the attack of the tarantula, death of Dr. No vibe, which was completely different. So I, I think one thing that we can bring up in relation to this this very abstract electronic score is a Forbidden Planet, which I think was the only film that was scored like this the whole way through. 
And while it worked for that film, I am not surprised there weren't many follow-ups. So, I'm not saying that Forbidden Planet is a direct predecessor of it. I'm, you know, maybe they didn't even see it. But that's the closest thing I can think of when thinking of these parts of the Doctor No musical, you know, salad or something. Later on, it would have something like Doctor Who, but that is, of course, a different Doctor and much later, so... That's true. I guess if you were to relate it, you could relate it to uh, the really early work of the Radiophonic Workshop, you know, uh, like Quatermass in the Pit and things like that, which were sort of sci-fi and, you know, you saw it on, on television more than anything, like you say, like Doctor Who and things like that. But that's what they were doing. They were trying to take something that even today, if you, you know, watch Doctor Who from 2005 on, you get a much more traditional score. So they were taking something that could have had a traditional score back then and kind of pushing the envelope with a bit of a music concrete angle to it. Returning back to the opening credits then, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the editing. And I know that from a soundtrack point of view, this is really down, well, for the opening credits anyways, down to the editing in the film rather than the editing in the music. But I wonder just how we all feel about the way the music is treated in that opening credits, because obviously it's, it's very much just cut up to fit what's on screen. And it... It's brutal cutting um, from, you know, from the James Bond theme, which is completely chopped up in itself. It's not used how it's recorded. And we'll talk a bit about Monty's feelings and about that in a minute. But then it obviously goes into that sort of percussion solo and then it goes into Three Blind Mice. And it's it just feels a little bit random. I think it's in I understand why they've had to do that to what's on screen, but it would have worked so much better if it had just gone from one to another rather than going through what just feels a bit of a of a short and random percussion solo from a musical point of view. I mean, there is a visual thing that has to be acknowledged, is that, you remember, the, the titles themselves are three distinct ideas. First, mm, you have this yeah. kind of banana sticker approach where the names are spelled out more. And then when we move on to the so-called, sorry to say the word, the lesser crew members, you know, the, the screen gets just... Uh, all filled up with names and you have this the silhouette of dancers so i think they uh, and by they of course i usually mean peter hunt in this case he wants uh, to acknowledge this because the first part of the credits is very fitting to that approach the second part it wouldn't work with the james bond theme so they just took one of the jamaica pieces from the sessions that's actually not on the soundtrack and then from there, it's a more natural transition to three blind mice, which of course must go with the first scene, because if, you, yeah. if you're not going to use it there, you can't use it anywhere else, really. Mm-hmm. I don't want to play devil's advocate constantly, but I kind of like it, to be honest, because I think Daphne Orm's opening music is interesting and it catches you off guard. It draws you in, like, what's going to happen? This is very strange. And then I think the James Bond thing works so well as a vibe to start the film off. You know, whether the editing notwithstanding, but I think the vibe works really well, but I don't necessarily think it could go directly into Three Blind Mice, which, as Gurgay says, has to happen at some point. So I, I sort of like the strange, like I drop the sampler down the stairs kind of sound that happens between that jarring kind of thing to then finally get you to Three Blind Mice. But to me, if the film started with Three Blind Mice, it would have a completely different sort yeah. of effect on everybody, but it could, you know, like you could have started it in a style where the credits faded up without the sort of uh, Morris Binder work. And you would have just had the three men walking with the three blind mice playing. And that could have been the beginning of a, of a spy film. 
And so instead, they decided to amp it up in this graphic design music kind of way. And so I personally think it's it's okay, but I could probably also I can also I mean, understand I, how they've done it. Later films would solve this. It's, let's face it, this kind of like a narrative issue. They would solve it with the whole pre-title sequence that we have a little burst of excitement, then some some action scene, and then we can move on to the opening credits. This is the you know this is the one which doesn't have that at this point. So. That, that's also something worth considering is that you have to cover a lot of ground and you don't have the, the conformity of the pre-title sequence that can be used as a cushion between the opening credits and the exciting opening gumbarrel sequence. That's true, yes. Now, I've got two points to make on this opening sequence before we move on then. The first one is about the, the way the James Bond theme is edited uh, into this because it's interesting that they've chosen to use the middle section as an opening because it's a absolutely like a right pow isn't it opening mm-hmm. whereas yeah. the actual original version john barry's orchestration starts a little bit more low-key kind of sneaky bond uh, atmosphere and actually as it happens that original version when that james bond theme gets used in a lot of places after that or when it's performed it they people often tag on to the start the da 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 and then it goes into the vamp the kind of low-key vamp just to kind of give it that the piece like an opening explosion you know pow we're here so in a way although that that version is the definitive version and and john barry the master uh, that came up with it I can kind of understand from a impact point of view why you would want the middle section at the front. And Monty Norman was was fuming when he first saw it, but actually when he watched it in context of the film, you know, went up and said, oh, "Actually, I apologise. I was wrong." Whenever I watch Doctor No, I sort of hear all the uh, occasions of the James Bond theme appearing more as. It represents what would have been there had they an extra million dollars and an extra two months to make it. They probably would have went, okay, let's re-record versions that actually fit every single scene we're putting them in. And we don't. So we're doing the best we can with the tech and craft that we have at the time, I guess. Uh, I mean, you know, just for reference, I think the whole budget of Doctor No was one million. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like another million just for the music would be quite luxurious for those standards. And a million for the film. Like if they just had more money to look at everything mm-hmm. again, that might mm-hmm. have been one of the things they would have done, right? Uh, so uh, you know, for the music, I think we are going to delve deep into what could have happened. Uh, for, for some of the insertions, we know what would have gone there. For other ones, it is really just Peter Hunt feeling like we need more. Bond here let's add the theme and that's it the way that things are used in this film and edited and and what's used where and particularly the reuse of the bond theme repeatedly just shows how unhappy they obviously were with what they had to work with particularly peter hunt and possibly as well the director as well that they just really weren't happy with what they had from the jamaica sessions and probably the london sessions as well in terms of creating that spy atmosphere that they wanted and so that james bond theme does all of that and some so why not just keep using it and of course the end benefit is that it's then made it iconic for the whole of the rest of the series though that's not obviously the reason they did it then and there i think they just use it because they literally had no choice because none of the other stuff created the 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 atmosphere that that did 
Can you use it too much? Apparently not. Well, Gerga, they didn't even know, did they, that they were going to use it in that way. I mean, John Barry, when he recorded it, he thought he was just recording the title theme. And of course, then it got used all over the film. He wasn't aware of that. So when they recorded it, they couldn't have even known that they were going to use it that way. I mean, one of the things he kept bringing up in interviews later on that if he had known how it was going to be used or what the end game was, which at that point I don't think anybody knew, he wouldn't have settled for that nominal amount of money that he got for it. So uh, I think, you know, first you had to listen to the, the final product before making such a commitment because by that point they already burned themselves from it with the Caribbean sessions, the Jamaica sessions, the London session recorded a bit later, obviously didn't throughout them either so compared to that they were just happy to have something applicable something usable in more than one way because keeping mind it's a bit like the indiana jones thing that it's not one theme it's multiple things and you can use the big bomb for the action sequences you can have a little sneaking around music so it, it's really multi-purpose thing mm. if you think about it that's true yeah it certainly is well, it's and, been uh, mined continuously hasn't it for throughout the last 60 years it yeah. certainly has. In the uh, early 1970s, what was it, like 1973, 74, John Barry did uh, the theme to Orson Welles' Great Mysteries. And if you've ever seen it, it's like a, an anthology series where Mr. Welles goes on and introduces a story, and then you get a different you know, story every week. And his theme also was recorded with like a few bumper versions that could get you in and out for advert breaks and things like that. So when he did the theme, there are other versions that came assumingly from the same session. So if initially the James Bond theme was planned to be used the way it ended up being used in Dr. Mm. No, they probably would have done something like that. They probably would have do a theme, then do a slower bed, then do just an intro, then do maybe just the guitar melody really slowly and just give us like 10 second bits that we can then track in and out. Well, one more question on this opening before we move on then. Gerge, the little percussion break that we were talking about that you were saying recorded in Jamaica, do, do we know any more information about that track? Is it available in its full form anywhere? Does it have a name or anything? Basically just skim through in the cue sheets a bit and it, it is not uh, not released on the soundtrack. So it's one of those cues that it's obvious that the Jamaica sessions con- continued more music than what's on the album. It's one of those examples that didn't make the final cut and its full version is not available anywhere. It's one of one of Carlos Malcolm's 53 sheets. <laughs> Maybe. Allegedly. <laughs> All right, moving on. Going to, to the, first, the first time we get some music in the film, then we get a... The first time the Bond theme is used orchestrally is when actually, I have to say, last time on the last podcast, we mentioned it was in the, the, the car journey from the airport. But actually, it's before that. I was watching the film this week in preparation and the first time it's used is when James Bond returns back home after the casino. But then there's also that other cue when Bond and is and the driver are, are, are heading from the airport. And there's a, a great big climax that just, for me, it doesn't really work or sync with what's on screen. It's, it's exactly the same cue that's used uh, in the Killing the Guard scene later, but it's in a slightly different performance. The one for the for the scene with the driver is slightly yeah. quicker and it's just ever such a slightly different orchestration as well like the bass trombones an octave lower in the second time than it is in the first time i noticed when i was doing a direct comparison 
this week. So they must have actually recorded that version twice. Yes, indeed. And keep in mind that if you listen very closely to the film, you will hear that they actually have some of these brutal cuts in these cues. So they just suddenly you can hear the music dialed down like, okay, that's enough. So it's, yeah. it's quite obvious that either there was no communication like exact spotting or it, it really felt like something that will fix it in post. And they obviously fix it in post because you have all these th- th- this sudden volume drops like, uh, and they mask mm-hmm. it with sound effects, whether it's an explosion or a really big hit or a scream. Uh, they use these to uh, uh, to mask the brut- most brutal of the cuts. And considering you know the limitations of the era that you when you edited music, you couldn't really do a little fade, a little tuck, you, you had to edit the music. This was the most high scale thing they could do is to is to hide the worst cuts behind sound effects that was the limitations of what they could do with that so the next little piece of music that comes up is the love at last source music which we hear in the club scene and this is one of those tracks that was recorded in the jamaica sessions and it really is a, a blink and you'll miss it cue on the film but actually I think it's quite a, a nice little number uh, on the actual soundtrack. It's charming. Uh, it is another example of uh, Monty Norman's charming sort of song-like music. Yeah. Do we think it was written probably to be used in the way it was, or do you think it would? It was expected to get a bit more substantial use because it, you really can't even really hear it in the film very well at all. It's very, very low in the mix. I mean, keep in mind that Love at Last, the track title itself, was given for the soundtrack because it was the final track on the album so this name is like kind of a misnomer because there is obviously no love uh, it's in the middle of the film so you know it's the fate of source music source music gets to be played in the background and that's how it goes so maybe he wanted it because of course it's it's uh, reworking the which theme is reworking like the, the dun, 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 dun. Um, it's a bit of jump up isn't it yeah so it's basically like jump up so it, it uh, you know jump up was kind of the as the music was kind of selected jump up was going to be the party music of the island you know the the music everyone is listening to like something that could come out of the radio like very conveniently so i i do feel it, it was kind of destined to be source music because because jump up is used as source music all the time basically. yeah true true I mean, we get the next thing we get really then is is Mango Tree. Before we actually hear Jump Up, we get Mango Tree for the first time at Putzfellas Club, and Mango Tree gets so many different versions in this film. I mean, maybe we could just cover a few of those at the moment. The first one being actually sung by Monty Norman himself and is played sort of as source music in the background at Pussfellas, isn't it? And of course, you know, Monty Norman was an established singer, a a well-known singer in his own right in his early career, uh, and worked with some really notable names, people like the Ted Heath Orchestra, which is an extremely well-known, high-quality big band in the UK, and some other top names of people like Spike Milligan, Harry Seacombe, Peter Sellers, Tommy Cooper... Uh, you know, working as a singer in the West End, places like um, he used to do shows on Sunday nights at London Palladium. And he's got a reasonable voice, I think. You know, I, I don't know whether he intended for this to be used. There's a lot of talk around versions that he recorded and, and his wife Diana Copeland recorded. In fact, they were used without their permission I think but you know I think he's I think he's got a pleasant voice for this it's, it's not it doesn't sound like a demo that way so it, it is a bit more established it's a bit more complex than it than it, it would be like a demo so I do think it was meant to be used as you know again something like a source music 
And keep in mind that there's also an un unused version on the soundtrack. So there's the female vocal version, there is the male vocal version, and there is one instrumental that, that is not used uh, in the film itself. Yeah, and there is another instrumental version that is used on the film that isn't on the soundtrack. There's like a twist version which is used at, at Pussfellas, kind of when they're all sitting around the table, I think, if memory serves. And that version isn't on the uh, soundtrack at all. It's like a big band sort of version, isn't it? There's yeah, definitely so... an expanded soundtrack out there somewhere. Yeah. In the making, I mean. Like, you know, just as as for collectors and completists, you can see how much there is to get. Well, at this point, I must just sort of insert as well. I did get one uh, note through for, for through one of the pages to tell us that we were wrong about the release of the soundtrack that it wasn't released in 63 it was actually in 64 that the soundtrack was released and apparently it came out after the Goldfinger one um, did it? apparently so so we stand yeah. corrected on that if that's the case uh, thanks. Mm, where did it come from? Because <laughs> it, it, was released at, it was released at different points in the UK and the US well that could be it then maybe that's maybe that. I think they were a UK based person I can't remember what sent it now but yeah that could be it then maybe the, did the US one come out earlier okay, okay. Uh, there is one easy uh, i'm going to do some research now while you guys talk about something else okay there is one easy way to look it up okay <laughs> okay okay well why while you're doing that while we're on the subject of mango tree i really want to put to bed the whole conversation or as much as we can anyway on who the heck is singing underneath the mango tree when uh ursula andres's character you know comes out of the sea um yes because there are there are several different, you know, I mean, the first thing is everybody always says, oh, that's not Ursula Andress, it's Diana Copeland. And there's a lot of confusion around this because Diana Copeland obviously recorded a version with guitar that's on the, it's on the soundtrack album. It was recorded yep. as a demo. And we know this because the clip that I played last time on the, on the last podcast of uh, Ursula Andress talking about this, that they had a demo that her and Sean fought over, which was purely so she could learn that song to sing it as she's coming out of the ocean. And Monty Norman has come out since and said, well, you know, that Diana Copeland was, was dubbed in or used without our permission. But I think what's happened is over the decades he's just got things uh, mixed up in, in you know in his recollections because the version of Diana Copeland recorded is not used as Ursula's coming out the sea. It's used uh, at Miss Taro's and it's on the record player there. And that's not you know that's not an open sort of for debate on that. That that's definitely the case. The version on the soundtrack is the same version that's been played in uh, from the record player at Miss Taro's. Underneath the mango tree, me honey and me come watch for the moon. Underneath the mango tree, me honey and me make bululoop soon. Okay, now let's hear Ursula singing, well, let's hear Ursula's character um, singing her version in the film. Okay, so the first thing you've got to recognise is that it's a completely different key. Underneath the mango tree, me honey and... So, that version that is used when Ursula's coming out the sea and the version that Diana Copeland recorded in the studio are not the same versions. 
Definitely. I mean, apart from the fact you can hear that the performance is different. I mean, I think it sounds like a different singer, but even if it isn't, obviously the first one sung in a kind of local accent, whereas the second one sung uh, supposedly as Ursula's character as Honey. So, you know, they are two different recordings. Now, it wouldn't make sense to me for Diana to have recorded the second version because she only ever recorded a version in the studio as a demo for Ursula to learn to either sing it or lip sync it anyway for that scene. So they'd have had to have recorded a second version in a different key with Diana singing it, bearing in mind that she never, she said she never knew that it was going to be used in the film. And, you know, Monty said he wasn't happy really, or he could have got, that they could have got into trouble that it was being used in the film because no one had given permission for it to be used in the film. Um, so they would have had to have recorded two versions without any reason for doing that. So it just doesn't make logical sense for me for it to be Diana Copeland. Plus, Nicky Van der Sill, who was the vocal artist used to revoice all of Ursula's character, all of Honey's part, for the whole of the film, has said that she was the one who sang it and it was her version that was used. And by the way, of course, Nicky van der Sill was a vocal artist used to replace a number of um, actresses' lines in the early films. Things like uh, she did, she dubs Eunice Gason in From Rush With Love, she dubbed Shirley Eaton in Goldfinger, um, she dubbed Claudine Alger in Thunderball. Um, she dubbed some parts in Unilift Twice. She dubbed some parts in uh, Majesty's Secret Service. And even dubbed Jane Seymour in Live and Let Die. So, you know, she did a lot of dubbing. And she did, all, say, all of Ursula Andress's part. And said that she um, sang that part. She said that she, she was the one who sang it. So, I think with the two things combined, although Monty and Diana have both said that it was Diana, I just think that they are thinking back to... 50 well 60 years ago and they're just getting their memories maybe slightly mixed between the use of the copeland version in miss taro's and the version that they remember from coming out the sea or of course the other option is that diana copeland's voice was maybe used in an earlier rough cut uh, that they saw that we've never been privy to and they're referring to that but i i think it's probably more likely the other option that that things are just getting mixed up um, but anyway, it's interesting because I often get in, well, now that I know that fact, I, I'm sort of feeling like I'm going to champion that cause and I've got in, I'm, I'm sort of going around on YouTube and there's so many things all over YouTube where it says it's Diana Copeland. But I, I just think when you listen to those bits of evidence that I've presented there, it can't be, it has to be Nikki van der Sill, I, I think. Just one other thing, while we're on that little subject, it's it's a little irritation of mine, and it's, it's a, look, it's a minor thing, it's a musical thing, a lot of people listening won't be bothered about it, but it's just a thing that I always find from a, a musical point of view a little bit of an irritation, is the way that James Bond's character, or it, in in fact, you know, Sean, the way that they play it, he, he interrupts uh, Honey, Ursula, in the middle of her singing under the mango tree, and I just find the way that it happens is actually, musically, it's quite rude. <laughs> it's 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 almost, I mean, I suppose his character is quite arrogant, particularly at this stage. But, you know, if you're, um, if you're interrupting somebody singing to join them in that 
moment. You join in at the point they're singing. You don't just cut in in the middle of their verse and start it again from the top. That's just musically it's just like it's poor etiquette and it's funny because in the book it says and i'm not one for big on the novels but i know that it says in the book that james bond takes up the refrain now if you take up the refrain you take it up where it is in the refrain and carry it on and then at that point ursula's character or honey would would you know she's there on the beach she's unaware of james bond's presence and it's a way it would be a way of alerting her that he's there without frightening her that he's being aggressive. Now, that approach of cutting in and starting again is quite an aggressive, like, quite a, quite a, a rude way of doing it. Whereas if you were trying to, to do it in a way of, hi, you know, just to let you know, I'm here, I'm approaching you, uh, I'm not a threat, whatever, a more friendly, polite, musical way of doing it would be to take up the, the song. I mean, you think about it if you're listening. If you were joining in somebody else's performance, you would join in where they are. You wouldn't just start it again from wherever you wanted to. So it's just a silly little uh, a little thing that I have about that bit. I guess we can, sorry. I can. I guess we can all agree that the definitive version belongs to Sean Connery. So <laughs> exactly. Yes. Okay, so going back, I, I did the research, it was 63. The easiest way to do is look at the label number and look at what's before and after. And all the other records with the same uh, label number were in 1963. And here's Poetic Justice. Can you guess what was the next LP released by United Artists after Dr. No? Espresso Bongo. No. Oh, Irma uh... La Douce. Oh, <laughs> well, which, which of course was uh, Monty Norman as well. Yeah, well, you know, except they didn't use any of the songs in the film, but otherwise, yes. Yeah. So mm. that one, based on the label numbers, it had to come out in 1963 because all the uh, all the neighboring label numbers came out in uh, in 1963. So I think in this case we got it right. Now, you know, when fans bought the record, when it got to them, or anything like that, it can change. But you know, label numbers, right? It had to come out in 1963. Okay, well, there you go, cleared that up. Sorry to whoever that was that sent it in. I'll have to go back and find it. I'm glad I didn't name them now. <laughs> no no shame. So, okay, well, let's go, go back into some sort of order where we were. Um, we did talk about the tarantula scene last time a sort of length and i wanted to just sort of you know cover a little bit more about this repetition or use of cues because the tarantula music is used both when strangways is presented with the tarantula and then when bond is sleeping and the tarantula is put in his bed but there's the other cue that's used twice i mentioned it earlier on um, is the cue that's the this sort of bit of music that's used when Bond has the fight with the driver. That same cue is used later on when the guard is killed by Bond on the island. So, you know, there are things that are being used, and uh, you know, several times across this score. The James Bond theme used a lot. Mango Tree used a lot. These two cues repeated a lot. You know, I know, albeit, as I say, this uh, guards, the one that's used for the guard scene, it is slightly different to be fair they've obviously actually have done a separate recording of this at least yeah and um, a lot of times back uh in the 50s and 60s uh a lot of fixing would take place on the stand as well so it is possible that the same cue that is used for the the death of the driver was just taken out and 
they'd scored it saying, well, let's see if we can fit it to another scene, you know, looking at the timings or something. And on the stand, they might have said, let's drop the trombones an octave or something to mix it up. True, true. We might talk a little bit about the non-use cues later on, but I've got a feeling that Monty Norman has said that the Boys Chase, which is which is on the soundtrack album but not yeah. used, was possibly he thought initially might have been used for that that scene when uh, Bond is is driving from the airport. Yes, and let me just uh, take up your space just a second because I do have a shocking revelation about that. Not not necessarily about the Boys Chase itself. I just have to go to my book for a second because I remember I made the exact note there. Hang on, I'm going to start a drum roll. Okay, so... Okay, uh, so uh, here's, of course, uh, in, in currently in the film, you have the first 20 seconds of the James Bond theme played when uh, Bond is driving up to Mistaro. And this is, you know, if you want to put in the boys' chase, it actually fits quite perfectly. Oh, that's, However, a, different, he, that's a different place to where I was thinking then. You're, you're, yeah, that's, you're, so you're talking when he's driving up to Mistaro's. I'm thinking of the, the taxi scene. But yeah. No, no, no. The boys' chase was written uh, for that in mind. It still fits. And here's a change in the French print. The French dub of the film, they play Jamaica jazz instead of the James Bond theme. Really? Yeah. Whoa, hang on a sec. Let me get my ducks in a row here. So what you're saying is, Bond is driving up to Miss Taro's and we have that... The version that we all, the main version that we all know and see, the UK-US release version, has the James Bond theme. But the French version, in fact, has Jamaican jazz. Yeah. Uh, occasionally it happens that local dubs have different music. Um, there is some weird ones I've noticed, and this is one of those, like, where the hell did this come from? Like, you know, Jamaica jazz is is not in the film in, in any other way, so they must have taken it from the soundtrack, but then why did they do it? So, I know it was... It was definitely in the, in the old DVD version I had. In, in that case, I had the movies in English, French, and Italian, I think. And uh, the French dub had different music for this sequence. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to mention it here. The French dub of The Man with the Golden Gun also has a little musical travesty like this. They cut out the brief music which references live and let die in the man with the golden gun so it's also it's completely missing there so um not sure if it's a legal thing but sometimes local dubs can have weird changes in them just just mentioning it here because it's it's applicable well that's that's fascinating because of course jamaica jazz is one of the ones that we've that i've got down as just not used but actually it makes it a little bit more legitimately placed on the soundtrack album now that it is actually used. And I, I never knew that. I never knew that. That's really interesting. Nor did I, yeah. The, the Jamaica Jazz, if, if you're mentioning here, that one is, is kind of fixed. Uh, when I did this kind of assembly cut to see, you know, if we can take out the James Bond theme, this one fits in with the arrival to the airport. And you can exactly replace the arrival to the airport with Jamaica Jazz to the to the same second, basically. And it you know it works very nicely because it's kind of establishing Jamaica as you know jump up country. Mm, yeah. And uh, it's it's a it's a pretty chill version. It's it's not as suspenseful as the James Bond theme, but um, you know if you, if you want to have more Monty Norman in Doctor No, that's one place where you can put it. Yeah, I, I I'm gonna say no. <laughs> i'm sure everybody listening will probably say the same anyway um moving on island speaks bond approaches the island now this is something that that um 
Jason, you and I talked a, a lot about uh, in pre previous to even you know getting involved in in actually getting this this episode going was that yeah I've always had this theory and actually I I realised I've read it as well um, in John Burling's book he he puts it in here that is secretly is Monty Norman a bit of a genius because he kind of uses the Chinese harmony Chinese sound in a lot of his Doctor No cues the ones that are used like this one and later on in the you know tucking Bond into bed and then the stuff that's on the soundtrack that isn't used there's this very sort of Chinese feel to it and I I thought wow you know he's referencing the Chinese heritage of Doctor No I think that's that's quite clever actually in the book he's what is he Chinese and German I think right mm -hmm. and I guess it is easier to reference Chinese heritage through music I suppose than it would be German in, in a score at the time because this was a, another you know kind of main concept of what film scoring was supposed to do sort of in the golden age from the 30s through the 50s was to somehow designate kind of geographical areas or something that was considered to be exotic and because music from asia is built on sort of a different system than western music is it's really easy to instantly designate something that in the west is considered exotic how the west sees things that aren't western is just a general kind of exoticness mm. that uh, can come through the music. And I was listening to back-to-back uh, -back Beatles songs on the internet radio last week uh, as I was thinking about Dr. No. And it reminded me of how much of uh, so-called Western harmony, the harmony that we're so accustomed to hearing, is built on chords in thirds, such as... And I was listening to uh, All My Loving and thinking, yeah, you get the melody in the first couple of verses. And in the third verse, you get the same melody harmonized in thirds. And this sounds very comforting and uh, familiar to us. And uh, the next track, Ubla Di Ubla Da, which came up, again, starts out with this bass line in thirds. outlining the major chord. And uh, in the middle, you even get this bit, followed by more thirds. Uh, you can even hear that in Monty Norman's uh, song-like music, such as the instrumental version of Underneath the Mango Tree. When you contrast that with something from another culture, which is built on fourths instead of thirds, uh, such as this piece of Chinese piano music called Plum Blossom, you can hear the difference in what we're used to hearing in popular music immediately. And it's this that composers exploited in the golden age of film scoring to suggest something exotic, something that is different to what we're used to associating with our culture here, the Western idea of what's in the East. If you listen to the main title from Charlie Chan in Shanghai, uh, which is credited to Samuel Kalin, you can hear this.
by the time the 1960s arrived, audiences were a bit more aware of the power of film music and the conventions of film generally, so composers weren't feeling the need to reference this so directly. Uh, in the late 1960s, Christopher Lee started a film called Castle of Fu Manchu, and if you listen to the main title by Charles Camilleri, you can hear how much lighter the references to this non-Western music are. <laughs> Uh, Jerry Goldsmith scored a film set in China in 1969 called The Chairman with Gregory Peck. And the love theme from this equally takes a much gentler approach to suggesting the non-Western setting through music. Contrasting this, the Dr. No underscore uses this direct technique so often used in the first couple of decades of film scoring. If you listen to the cue for The Killing of the Guard, for example, you hear a simple rhythmic melodic figure that rises to the climax. Harmonize completely straightforwardly with fourths. to be found. Uh, and likewise, uh, The Island Speaks, which is the material on the soundtrack that sort of forms the basis of what we associate with the theme for Dr. No, you get this simple rising and falling sinister melody. Once again, very simply harmonized in fourths. These are real textbook examples of a golden age approach to musically 
painting something exotic to us and the soundtrack's full of them well i'm sure you probably guessed uh jason dropped in that little bit of recording there separately to our little bit and it was really interesting jason to to, to hear you doing all that and thank you for for doing that uh, just bringing it round back round to the island speaks and and the theme or the, you know the sort of idea that we get used in there and it's also used in audio bongo on the mm-hmm. on the soundtrack it's a very much the way that monty norman approaches composition in the uh jamaica sessions or, or it seems to be running through several of the tracks is a kind of almost a step approach of of writing melody which almost feels like it's scalic it's it's based around scales and certainly in the point that this particular theme just makes its way up a a sequence of seven notes and makes its way back down a sequence of seven notes yeah and and so it 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 kind of feels like it's not a traditional melody um the way that, that we westerns hear it and you know, we were saying it kind of feels has that sort of Oriental vibe to it, or certainly an exotic vibe to it, which you we could associate with the Oriental sort of feel to it. But it seems to be an approach that he was definitely going for because in the unused tracks on the soundtrack album, and I'm talking in terms of Twisting with James, Doctor Knows Fantasy, The Boys Chase, they all use that that theme. Um, which also has a very sort of stepped approach to the melody where it sort of all feels based around a scale. And, you know, in our little chats, we kind of think we kind of identified it as a natural minor scale, which is a very rare scale. But again, it has a, it doesn't have a sort of Western feel to it. It has this sort of exotic feel to it, which I think is probably why people don't particularly love these tunes because they don't fit, they don't slot with the palette that we're used to listening with, do you think? Yeah, you could definitely say that. I think, uh, as you were saying, the uh, Twisted with James and Dr. No's Fantasy melody, um, as you say, it is a natural minor scale. It is missing the note that we basically insist upon to give us a sense of finality in our melodies, the thing that is in pop music that we like so much. This note, we don't hear in that. We hear this note. It, yeah, it is a non-common use of a scale in Western music. And also, I guess you basically said this, we kind of consider a certain amount of variety in melodies that we like. So directions tend to change in, mm. in songs a lot. That's one of the things that takes us on a journey. And these ones do tend to, yeah, they, they go up and then they go straight back down again. So there is something a little bit different about that. You know, maybe he's trying to say something about the otherworldliness of where we're at in the story at that point. Because, you know, Twisting with James, he just kind of goes down and then goes back up. And the island speaks goes up and then it goes back down. That's all it does, right? Yeah. Or it's just a very rudimentary approach to composing. Maybe. I don't know. He, is, he, he tends to be writing or co- most comfortable writing in this sort of very sort of sweet kind of ditty-ish little like songs that he writes which he writes really really well like mango tree is a lovely little song but it's it's quite a a simple song it's the type of that that sort of classic songwriter who just sits at the piano and creates a song that's pleasant to listen to but actually dare i say it it's not like on an academic level it's not super complicated at all you know lacks any depth when you peel back even a couple of layers 
And actually, when you come to write a score and you've got to go beyond just writing songs that are going to be sung on a beach or in a in a in a bar or or uh, source music or a band playing, now you've actually got to write a score. It, it takes a, a much more skilled requirement, which Monty Norman, by his own admission, you know, he hadn't ever had that. So, you know, the pro the approach to me, maybe I, I would, I mean, you may disagree with me. I, I don't want to be negative about Monty Norman, but I find it's, it, it's quite rudimentary approach, I think. But, you know, anyway, the exotic stuff that he does bring in, interesting approach uh, and, and interesting ideas he brings in. And also, I think when you wanted to exemplify, when you wanted to create a sense of exoticness, you had to really go for it in the first few decades because that was what scores were supposed to do. They were supposed to convey as much sort of emotional information in as little time as possible. So you had to be direct. So I guess audiences have become sort of more educated and perhaps composers have realized they don't have to be quite so on the nose with it. Yeah, you can hear that they're not doing that anymore. As scores have evolved and audiences have gotten more used to what they're able to hear, you don't have to overtly kind of play with those fourths and and that sort of organization as directly. But this is not something we heard in Monty Norman. And as we talked about last week, that score comes from an approach, the Dr. No score comes from an approach that is slightly traditional for 1962. Or at least not, you know, radical for 1962. I notice in your notes, you've got a little note here about You Only Live Twice, and it brings me on to a thought I was going to have about this, is that I've always felt that the difference with John Barry when he approaches that Eastern Oriental kind of sound is that he does incorporate the bit of the fourths and that, that sound, but he does it in a more Western way. So it, that approach changes where it's written in a Western style with a lean, a hint towards the 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 locale of where the the music the the uh, film is being set and it that's precisely yeah. that's how they change the approach isn't it i mean we'll talk more about that approach when we get to you know twice but you know a little example of even in the opening intro to the song of you only live twice you know that 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 you get that sort of oriental flavor yeah but within a western structured song Yes, it's very light. The approach of it is lighter. I mean, I I do have two things to say here. One is, of course, you know, I have to, you know, object against Monty Label as a genius because if somebody <laughs> had this experience, if we are to believe him, he did do a little musical called The House for Mr. Biswas, which was about Asian cultures in Caribbean. Mm. So. I think he was, you know, if anybody was well equipped for this kind of mesh of locals, it was him. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe it's not the James Bond thing that really came from it. Maybe it was some of the other stuff or, you know, if, if, if there was any more connection between the two. The other thing is, is that, uh, you know, for the untrained ear, it's not about fourth or fifth. It's also about the instruments. So, for instance, when you, when you said that you only twice uh, the little Asian flavored opening, it's also about what instruments are playing it. And, you know, yeah, yeah, Unix Twice has more of a, you know, I know a lot of it is cheating. They are using Western instruments to sound like Asian ones, but it's what we expect to be the Asian sound. And in Doctor, no, they obviously don't have the budget for that. They are not going to bring in native instruments. So it's only the music that can do that kind of magic, but not the instrumentation, because there is no Asian sounding music. Like the instruments are not Asian sounding. It's all about the music theory background there. Yeah, I, I've just on your first point, I just want to 
clarify what you're saying there. I mean, I, listen, I'm not really calling Monty Norman an absolute genius, but yes. what I'm saying is, I've got to be careful here, but what I'm saying is, I, I kind of wondered whether that was his thought process, but what you're saying is actually he's well averse to writing in that Asian style because he's been doing it with various shows, and especially in his recent time at that point, he's just kind of, made, maybe it's just that he's just in that zone. Is that what you're mm-hmm. saying, isn't it? Yeah, I, I'm saying that, of course, uh, that it was, I, I would think it's a very, very good company. <laughs> so, Excuse me. <laughs> so that I, I'm going to start again. Yeah, I see that one again, yeah. Sorry. Uh, uh, I, I was born with this unlucky sneeze here, so... <laughs> <laughs> That's a brilliant timing. You could have waited till we got onto the uh, good sign, bad sign subject. I know. That was my fault. <laughs> okay, but in any case, so uh, yeah, of course, I, I'm joking here a bit, but he was, uh, you know, he was in the zone for that, as you said. So, uh, you know, it, it was a very good casting, maybe a very lucky casting, because keep in mind that apart from a you know a little throwaway line from the script, this whole Asian thing is not as emphasized yeah, no. in the film than in the in the book, where yeah. it's where it's almost racist. We can call it racist, I think. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of racist. And in the film, if you don't see the film being shot, if you don't see the the makeup work, you know, and some of the really goofy makeup work, because Zina Marshall, who was of course not a you know Japanese girl or a Chinese girl or whatever, and they had to, you know, she has this really big black toughy hair and they had to use like rubber bands to to make her look chinese so so it's really that much of an afterthought sometimes that you know then the three blind mice in the novel are clearly half jamaican half chinese for added flavor of racism in the film it's not made a point Mm, yeah let's talk about the doctor no theme then because there's lots of things on the soundtrack that are, are called doctor no's theme or doctor no's fantasy but to me it's that scalic figure that's what actually ends up being doctor no's theme it's used yeah i associate that with him yeah, yeah. like that's what i mean that's kind of his his light motif isn't it yes, yeah yeah uh, the, the discussion is made harder because they did give Dr. No Steam to another track, which is, of course, not Dr. No Steam, but, but a version of one of those. A bit less confusing if we called it Dr. No's light motif. To, to me, that, that sort of scale, if you can call it a theme, but certainly is a, a, you know, a tune or, or a, an idea that's used anytime really Dr. No is either well, certainly kind of mentioned... We get it at the start when... Well, it's used in the radio operative at the start. I think it's True Blood. She's, uh, when she's killed, you know, that you get that theme for the first time. And then you get it during The Island Speaks and you get it later on when uh, Dr. No's tucking Bond into bed and what have you. That, that sort of very much becomes Dr. No's theme within this film, although it's not, not called that. If it's, a, if it's purely luck, then it's really great luck. But it does sort of have that... Chinese uh, reference at least anyway. Yeah, credit has to be given to the fact I think it works too. You know, I do think that as Gerge so ably demonstrated that a lot of this hasn't come from a sort of central vision that's cast itself throughout the film from the beginning of the process. A lot of it has been chopped and changed and moved around and everything else. But in that process, what they ended up with in this respect, I think, you know, there is a sort of sinister kind of creeping up motion to that little melody that little motif that does work 
if you were going to have the villain and you're going to have scenes where you're only referring to the villain, but you haven't seen him yet, but you hear his theme before you see him. I mean, that's, that's a quite effective thing to do in a film. And in this case, I think that's one of the stronger, you know, sort of motivic melodic aspects of the score as we've ended up with it. Last time we mentioned this whole monster movie parallels, but you know, in most monster movies, they, they need a big entrance for the monster, but it also has to come much earlier in the film because, you know, you paid for the giant spider, you want to see it. And here, because it's, we know it's a human, but we find out he's kind of like a very weird kind of human. They can take this as far as they can take it. You know, he really just opens up for maybe the last, last half hour, I think. And uh, he is he is the monster in our monster movie, and he still gets this low key entrance when he walks into the room. You see his shoes. You it's pretty good world building and 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 tension building. You know I I think later Bond fans would not have the patience for that. In some ways, just having that really eerie scale that doesn't feel natural to our Western palate and it feels uncomfortable to listen to, it works well with the fact that you're not getting the comfort of knowing who that mysterious person is. You have to wait a long time, as you say, before you actually get the reveal and see him. So in a lot of ways, actually, when I think about it, the fact that we don't get a more traditional theme and it's just this unusual Eastern uh, scale that we get, it, it actually works very well to build attention too, doesn't it? Yeah, and it also does fit in with this idea of, of the reveal of the monster. If you see the uh, the Toho Godzilla films, Godzilla is never in the first 45 minutes of most of them. You know, you do have to wait. You get mentions of something. The story is building towards something, but you have to wait for the monster to appear. This is a very familiar uh, kind of trope of that kind of film. But, but his actual appearance is also kind of low-key that, you know, he, he's just there. He just speaks and... He's there from nothing. So I think that, that it's also like you, you wait for a big reveal and it's just the most harmless, you know, I'm here, come have dinner with me. True. Yes. They might have made more than that if they would have had another chance to go at it, I think. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, in the original novel, he's even weirder looking. He has all these body modifications, giant octopus which he pits against Bond. So, you know, none of that stuff was going to make it to the film. But with this music, it almost kind of would have worked, even that. Yeah. Mm, yeah. That that's so sad that we never have either of you read the book? I have actually, yeah. 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 And, and the end with and the you... giant squid and the in the eye and everything. I mean, oh, that would have been so brilliant in a film. You could never have done it without a big rubber thing in nineteen sixty two. There is this thing, you know, there's a puss feller. He wrestles I think alligators or crocodiles. And you know, he's called Puss Feller. He's actually wrestling octopuses. They so, just yeah. even remove that mention because, you know, that would be silly to, to wrestle an octopus. Well, gents, we're in danger of becoming a Bond podcast here and not a music score podcast. <laughs> we oh, can... no! <laughs> I know, I know. But bringing it back round then, we've got two real major um, cues to cover in the remainder of the film. There's the death of Dr. No. Now, I'm really interested to get your guys' opinion on this because I have to say I've never really had a very much of an opinion on this particular piece. And I'll tell you for why. In the context of the film, you really can't, I don't think, you really can hear very much of it. And it's not on the soundtrack. I know that there's maybe versions of it that are being recorded and stuff, but, you know, I've never really had much of an opinion about it. And people talk about it, and and I just always sit back and think, 
how are you even having a conversation about this? Because you can't really hear it in the film, can you? You can hear it in From Russia with Love twice. Well, but then, but then, yeah. Even, yeah, but even then, it's it's used underneath the boat chase, isn't it? Uh, it's also used. Uh, it's used the with, uh, with the helicopter bit. So yeah. I think you can you can edit out a fairly good version of it if you try. Well, maybe I'll do that underneath while we're talking. But yeah. I don't know. I mean, it it doesn't. Listen, maybe it's also the fact that it just doesn't do anything for me musically. I, I you know, it, it is. Someone else talk. No, it's uh, it's it is it is the very literal mining disaster music that uh, they had this saying about the the whole orchestra score of Doctor No that either it, it emanates from Terence Young or Peter and this is you know this is mining disaster music when they wanted to voice you know kind of explain why the Jomberry theme was used so much and this is this is the very definition of that sentiment because it is actually you know it's a mine it's a mining facility which is being destroyed so this is very literally mining disaster music but of course they were thinking of all these kind of old you know dramatic big music which can it is painted with very wide brush strokes and you can cut in anything you can you know it just sounds like you know Götterdammerung like you know budget Götterdammerung and you know you can cut in falling walls and and people running and shouting and it's you know it as much effect as it can has it still has underneath all the rumbles so uh, i'm not against it i know it's it's maybe the least subtle of the cues if i if i may mm. say so so it doesn't have the little james bond hints of the killing the god theme it doesn't have the the brilliance of the tarantula stuff it's just you know things about to get destroyed buckle up so it's it's not subtle it's it's the most old-fashioned more most goofiest of the cues but you know i i can take it especially if especially you don't hear much of it as you said so it's it's not going to bother anyone no that is true and and yes i i would agree with all of that sort of related to what we said last week the approach that it takes is the same as the approach of the rest of the score like the uh, orchestral underscore so it's consistent in that sense it doesn't stick out in any way from the fairly big and over-the-top scoring approach that they've taken and it also uses again semitones it uses a constant set of motifs that then rise and rise again and that was again an example of responding to the images themselves you know you could say that in the film there's a lot of different ways that you could look at the climax of the film and you could say that it represents a sort of triumph by James Bond you know it's a victory it's a heroic thing or if you look at the screen and just see what's happening you see oh it's a disaster things are blowing up people are evacuating you know chaos is ensuing on 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 every angle and that's what the music reflects it reflects the pure literal visual aspect of what you're seeing on the screen which is basically what this score does as we talked about last episode can we stop? Uh, I do think that there's a bit of James Bond theme in it, isn't there? At least in the re-recording, I know there it is. Yeah, at the very end. Well, yes, you and that in, yeah, in From Russia, we love you. No, there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely bits of James Bond theme in there. I mean, that's always been my point. It's very hard to hear in, in certain points. There, especially when all the explosions and stuff are happening. There's bits before and afterwards that you can pick out, but very hard to hear what's going on. There is this idea that comes up in actually lots of these, these catastrophe movies that 
they of course use miniatures and the you know the the final explosion in doctor no is using a, a miniature like in the bathtub or something uh, and you can mm-hmm. almost you know feel the cardboard so all mm-hmm. these heavy sound effects all these explosions the voice collapsing they sell you on the idea that you're yeah. not watching cardboard being torn apart so it works much better than than any music could because by hearing it you can kind of feel the weight i mean there's this movie called love it very much guilty pleasure medusa touch and in the end you know big spoiler cathedral is collapsing and you have all these massive sound effects competing with the music of michael j lewis and the, the rocks are bouncing the cathedral rocks are bouncing as they hit the floor because of course they are not made from rocks they are like you know like this kind of bouncy material yeah. so but it it really sells you that you know it's just collapsing and people are getting crushed so sound effects uh, overcoming music has a very important sure. part in this sure, I sure. Think. well i mean i know i was not particularly complimentary of my feelings about that that cue but when we come to the the cue as the coast guard pick up bond and honey rider i have to say i think this is the most poorest bit of writing in the well, certainly up until Goldeneye, anyway. I, it is. I just think it's just so old-fashioned. It really just jars with me. I, I mean, I want to be a little bit more intellectual than just giving my feelings about it, but it it just feels like a 30s, 40s black and white film that you know the the music is just so out of place for a, for a James Bond film as we know it now. Um, well, that's yeah. That's, that's the key, you, of course. Yeah, that is the key. You sort of have to preface everything by saying as we know it now but i agree with you in the sense that that cue doesn't i think i'm ready for it by the time you get to the end of the film if that makes sense like the score has put me up to set me in the mood to expect things along these lines so they don't seem as shocking as they would be but it yeah it doesn't represent the swagger and the style and the overall you know personality of james bond particularly sean connery you know as he went through the 60s it, it doesn't do any of that no it's 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 a stupid point to make from me if i'm saying that about you know obviously you can't judge it on 50, 60 years of films afterwards i did say that but i but i would also follow up and say but actually even within the context of the rest of the soundtrack it just feels completely out of place in context with even everything it's almost like it doesn't really fit into any of the london sessions it doesn't fit into any of the jamaica sessions it doesn't fit in with the james bond theme it doesn't fit in with daphne orams it doesn't fit in with the fact that actually a lot of this film is not scored at all it's just it's yet like another idea another and a completely other compartmentalized uh, sound effect or, or or approach to writing and it's like da, 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 you know like almost sort of yeah. happy-go-lucky marching military music which just feels completely wrong two questions on my end one is it actually referencing some british march or is it just generic happy happy music don't recognize it go guy but i'm not saying that it definitely doesn't but to me it's just it sounds like very generic reference military music yeah i i didn't recognize it as anything i knew not that my uh, experience is extensive but yeah i i just sort of lump it in with that literalism again you know like after a disaster you have the sort of military-based end of naval-based rather end of the film in a positive victory way so you just jump from massive disasters music to something that is reflecting of that this particular cue really highlights the fact that it's so scattergun across the whole soundtrack because it just sits out on its own right at the end of the film you you know who is a big fan of this cue 
go on. Monty Norman. In the audio commentary of the on the Blu-ray, actually he's, he's, he's saying some very weird stuff right here. He says the LP was released very, very quickly. Which, you know, we know it's like, you know, one year, which is, you know, depending on how you think it's very, very quickly. And he says he's a big fan of this queue. And I think he also says he, he wishes it would have been, you know, on the LP and he wishes it would have been louder in the movie or something to that effect. So it, it's right here. I can listen to it to, to make the correct assumption. But uh, one of the few times that Monty Norman speaks upon the other commentaries is with this queue. Well, there you, there you go. You can you can actually listen to it if you of course you have it. Uh, it's at the very end when this scene is playing and he's uh, I'm not sure I, I think he's saying that he wish it had been on the album or he wishes it would be louder or something to the effect. But he's a big fan of this cue, obviously. Yeah, well. <laughs> well, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, before we sort of wrap up, there's a, just a couple of tracks on the soundtrack that we haven't even discussed that aren't used. One of which I have to mention Jamaican Rock. Jamaican Rock, great title. What the hell is going on in that track? Have you, I don't listen, I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to play it so you can hear it. Just a reminder this, the playing on this is just. It's so all over the place. I mean, I think there's been a few drank drinks had before they put that one down. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's, it's uh, Carlos's highlight. So it almost sounds like two cues are playing at the same time, doesn't it? It really does, doesn't it? It's like the two bands where it had an Esquivel thing, but they lost the uh, the connecting wires between the two studios, and the bands just played without hearing each other or something. Yeah, it's chaotic. It's chaotic. If that's what they were trying to, you know, like if you were trying to create a party atmosphere, it does that. But, uh, I feel mm. I feel like some of these cues, you know, that are on the soundtrack that aren't used, they are almost just trying to fill up time on the album with it. I mean, surely you jest. <laughs> time fillers on an album. <laughs> I mean, now that you mentioned it, that I've had crazy stuff like that. They actually mix two tracks on top of each other. That's at this point, I can totally believe that. But you know, it requires further investigation. What about the two Dr. No's, the Dr. No's fantasy and Dr. No's theme? They were muted as possible options of to be used as, instead of the James Bond theme. We don't get them anywhere in the score. Yes, I can tell you that, uh, of course, uh, Monty Norman had the foresight to write these cues because they are used to bits in the Inside Dr. No documentary and some of the other ones. So obviously they were written for those movies. I mean, some of them open with, with Dr. No's fantasy, basically, so it's just, you know, it has a really cool open. It's, uh, it's, it's better than some of the stuff that made it into the film, or the other text. So you're saying the Doctor No's theme, Doctor No's fantasy, they do get used in in documentaries and stuff. Even so, uh, on the Blu-ray documentaries, mm -hmm. yeah, they they were they were used. I think Inside Doctor No actually begins with. The, I'm not. Don't quote me on this, but I think I just remember like putting on the DVD. It just hits you on the face. 
Well, gentlemen, I think we're going to wrap it up there as we sort of had a sort of deeper look at the cues from this score. But we're going to come back next time and look a lot closer at the James Bond theme, in particular the controversial nature surrounding it and how it came about. And we're going to have a look at the well-known court case, the one that everybody says was Monty Norman versus John Barry, which it wasn't. It was Monty Norman versus The Times. And John Barry was called as a star witness for The Times. Now, one of the people who actually went every day to court and watched the whole thing was a gentleman called Peter Greenhill. Anybody listening to this that's active on James Bond music groups on Facebook and what have you will know that Peter Greenhill is quite active on those sorts of things. So we're really looking forward to welcoming him to join us on the next podcast to recount the court case and we'll look a little bit closer into all the details around it. But anyway, that's it for today. Looking forward to doing that next time, seeing you next time. Thank you very much for joining us. Cheerio. See you soon. Bye.